Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. On a warm afternoon in 1969, Bonnie Caldwell steps out under the granite commons of Sierra College. On her head is a starling. She gives it a nudge, and it takes off. A young great horned owl named Sherman clings to her shoulder. The owl was on my shoulder, not flying, but, uh, but the starling was going back and forth, and always coming back and landing on the top of my head. Bonnie, with her long honey blonde hair, is home base. That was an area where I could let them fly. She's 18, a science student who also works in the lab, taking care of the menagerie of animals, orphan birds, lizards, and an 18-foot anaconda named Anna. As Bonnie watches the starling wheel overhead, she realizes she herself is being observed. A man she's never seen before on the small college campus stands on the other side of the commons. And so he crossed over and came and started up a conversation. He's an older student, a full head taller than Bonnie, thickly built with sandy-colored hair. He introduces himself. He tells her his name's Joe. It's not his looks that Bonnie finds appealing. Uh, it was just jeans and a T-shirt. He was not uh, what I would call lean and fit. Uh, stocky, but not really overweight. But there is something compelling about Joe D'Angelo. A restless energy. Uh, just sort of had a bounce in his step and a nice smile. Was very curious and uh, seemed very outgoing to talk about the birds and to approach me, not knowing me. Um, and that was just sort of my first impression of him. Joe is five years older than Bonnie, a Vietnam vet studying to be a cop. Soon, he drops by the science lab almost every day until got a date. He asked me out. She says yes to this easy talker with a swagger and a taste for muscle cars. Joe's always in motion, and soon, Bonnie is his sidekick. A lot of outdoors activities, um, fishing, uh, going over to Folsom Lake. Uh, eventually, he was helping me learn how to scuba dive. And he introduces her to guns and teaches her to sharpshoot. He purchased a 22 rifle for me, a little brownie. It matched the one that he had. And so we would do target shooting almost from his front porch. They head out for long rides on his motorcycle. Joe teaches her to lean into the curves as they speed through the canyons. He always knew where he was headed, and I just hung on. It's on one of those rides Joe takes her into the hills above the American River. They take the road alongside a ravine. On one side, the ground drops steeply away. Bonnie buries her nose into the smell of English leather, her long hair whipping in the wind. And then, suddenly... Joe, without saying a word to me, just turned right, went down a very steep bank that I had no idea what he was doing. Bonnie thinks they're headed off a cliff, and then the ground rises up to meet them. This was like suicide for me. <laughs> what are you doing? 
He's taken Bonnie onto a steep hill used by off-roaders. Thinking we're not going to make it to the top. It was fear for me. But to Joe, it's great fun. He revs the bike for another run. He enjoys the thrill and her fear. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window. This is Episode 5, Bonnie and Joe. In 1959, Rancho Cordova is a very different place. Fifteen years before the East Area Rapist will begin his rampage here. It brims with activity. The giant bombers at Mather Air Force Base. Builders erecting hundreds of tract homes for new military families moving in. And a new highway cutting through the middle splitting the community in two, north and south. Judy lives on the south side, by the airfield. She's the middle child in a large family of nine kids. In 1959, she starts a friendship with a new girl in her class, and the girl has an older brother. He's pulled in by Judy's boisterous family. I think Joe saw that in our family, and it just drew him to us. Joe and Judy are the same age, both children of military fathers and working mothers. But even in junior high, Judy sees a loneliness in Joe and a cold instability to his life. Like the other military kids in Rancho, Joe is from somewhere else. His father, Master Sergeant Joseph D'Angelo Sr., has bounced his family from New York to Oklahoma and New Jersey to Washington and Germany, and then two bases in California. I don't think he really had a childhood. He never had a chance to breathe for himself, you know? Even then, Judy can tell the D'Angelo household is not a nurturing one. Judy never sees Joe's father around, nor his mother much, though there's always food in the refrigerator. It's up to Joe to take care of his younger brother and sister. I'm not sure, but I think he even did the laundry but he always made sure they were up and dressed and ready for school and had their lunches, and he fixed the dinners for them when they came home and their snacks. He was always in charge. Judy's crowded household of nine kids seems chaotic, but it's warm and loving, and there's always a parent present, parents who obviously love one another. Judy's father is especially endearing. Every year, he plays Santa Claus, even before his beard turns snow white and he grows it out to complete the look. Her family is quite unlike Joe's. Because here's a mother and father that were together for 60-some years. And even though Dad worked, he had time to go out and play football with the boys and, and, and uh, play baseball with the boys. And, and he was a coach of a Little League team. And, you know, he had time to do all that. He took time for his kids. And, and Mom was always with us girls, you know, teaching us how to bake. They had time for their children. Joe falls in with her brothers, first at school and then at home. 
because they were so close. I mean, they went fishing together and and uh, out shooting together and goofing around like like boys do and working on their cars and going out with their girlfriends and going to parties and dating together and football games and stuff. Joe starts calling Judy's parents, Mom and Pop, as if they're his own. And Joe, you know, he was always there. He was like my sixth brother. And like he is her parents' tenth child. Joe's senior class pictures framed and set on the shelf next to the rest of the kids, where it will remain in the family home for 50 years. No matter where he moves, Joe always returns to Rancho Cordova, to this house and this family. Joe falls in with Judy's brothers. They joke around, tinker around cars and hop fences to hunt small game. They use the drainage canals to reach the river to go fishing. But he's different. Though Joe has the build, he doesn't join in football. His humor is dry, and his most striking trait is his determination. He can do anything he wants. He can accomplish anything he sets his mind to. He's also reserved. Joe seldom talks about himself, nor his feelings. He never shares his struggles or his disappointments or the loneliness Judy is certain he feels. He just doesn't connect. He keeps everything in. He's, he's a very private person, and he never brags about anything, and he never talked about his problems. Judy never sees Joe lose his temper, but her brother does. They were in high school, and there was some kid there that was a big bully, and he started a fight with Joe. And Joe, I just, I guess, beat the crap out of him. And everybody, oh, yeah, Joe, that's great, you know. And he says, but Joe, he never discussed it. After it was over with, that's it, it was over with. Joe's so much like another brother, and so respectful that Judy never has any reason to be afraid of him. It's not until decades later that she wonders if he was involved with something that happened to her one night that paralyzed her with fear. She's asleep in her bed when she wakes with a feeling she's being watched. And I saw the shadow outside my window and I could see the person because the light from the street light came this way. And I was so scared I couldn't even get out of bed. She's afraid to give a sign she knows he's even there. And I don't remember whether the dog started barking or what it was, but it was a good five minutes they stood there. And then they just ducked and left. And the next morning I told my parents about it. And uh, I remember my dad was sitting at the table drinking his morning cup of coffee. And my mom was packing lunches for us kids. Her dad asks Judy if she's dreaming. And one of her brothers goes outside to check the flower bed. And here were the footprints under my window. Somebody had been there. Like the other military brats in Rancho, Joe's from somewhere else. His father, Master Sergeant Joseph D'Angelo Sr., has bounced his family from airfields in New York, Oklahoma and New Jersey, to Washington and to Germany, and through two bases in California. Even in Rancho Cordova, every year they exchange one new tract house for another, all of them near the base. Even the furniture is temporary. The bunk beds, the dining room, and the living room sets, all mortgage. Joe is in high school when his father transfers out. This time, it's to Korea. And when his dad returns stateside, it's to Central Florida. Joe's mother decides not to leave Rancho. She's seeing someone. And Joe 
dates one of Judy's best friends. He takes the girl out to the river bluff and proposes to her, but she turns him down. So Joe, now 18, quits high school at the start of his senior year to join the Navy. Two weeks later, his parents' divorce is final. The fracturing of the D'Angelo family is complete. Three months later, Joe ships out for Vietnam. He's been back only a matter of months when he meets Bonnie on the campus of Sierra College. Bonnie's father, Stan Caldwell, is a former boxer and a truant officer who's tough on even his own children. He's now the principal of a high school for kids on the edge who need a second chance. He has rigid ideas about the roles of women, and that puts him at odds with his daughter. He and I were not close. Uh, in fact, we were adversarial in many ways. Her father believes university education is wasted on women. And while her brothers head off to universities, he sends Bonnie to a junior college to study nursing. Her own heart had been set on medical school. At first, Bonnie's father objects to his 18-year-old daughter dating an older man. But Stan Caldwell was a World War II hero who went behind enemy lines to rescue down pilots. He warms up to Joe when he learns of his service in Vietnam, especially after Joe tells him he has a war injury, the missing tip of an index finger. The story that he told me was that it was a stray bullet when he was on a patrol boat in the Mekong Delta. The injury also elevates Joe in the eyes of Bonnie, who visits wounded soldiers at a naval hospital. What Joe tells his childhood friend Judy about his missing fingertip is very different. They were uh, setting depth charges, and um, he was down there, you know, getting the thing ready, setting the depth charges, and the barrels would slide off this thing and be shot out into the ocean. And he says, one slid down, he said, I didn't move fast enough, and it slid right over his finger and cut the tip of his finger off. Joe's Navy records contain no mention of a combat injury. In neither of the ships Joe served on saw direct fire. During his four years at sea as a mechanic, the ships sat offshore, shelling enemy positions from afar. Joe says nothing else about his war experience. Around Bonnie's family, especially her father, the couple behave a lot like high school sweethearts. Joe even takes Bonnie's high school class ring, and he slides it onto his little finger. But alone in the living room, while his mother and stepfather are away, the differences in their ages and their world experience are evident. Joe puts a record on the stereo. And always the doors. Always the music had to be the doors. You, you can't lose your virginity without breaking through to the other side. <laughs> Joe is Bonnie's first sexual partner. But even to her, he seems insatiable. And what starts out as fun turns into an excruciating exercise in endurance. He said that he had trained himself to ejaculate a little bit and then stop. And then in 20 minutes, he'd start all over again. He'd do that four or five times, sometimes more. That was normal. That was almost every time normal. For Bonnie, these long sessions are painful, almost unbearable. Number four and five were not fun for me. That was beyond my ability to tolerate, almost. But Bonnie never says, and Joe never asks, 
because it's Joe who's in charge. Before she met Joe, Bonnie could almost always be found in the science department. She's a top-flight student, asked by the faculty to tutor older students in physics. She plays the piano and listens to Simon and Garfunkel. Joe shakes up her world. He introduces her to bullfighting on late-night TV, psychedelic rock, and fast cars. It's a common takeaway among those who know him. Joe has a knack for keeping his life such a closed book, even his lifelong friends don't know much about what's going on inside. The one place Joe seems to feel at ease is with Bonnie's large family. She's one of six kids, and they embrace him with the same warmth as Judy's family. He frequently hangs around the Caldwell farm with its big house high up on a hill above the American River. There's a fruit orchard and horses, Joe takes Bonnie's siblings to the drive-in in his muscle cars. He seems fun and easygoing, if a little obsessive. If someone drops even a single piece of popcorn in his car, he will pick it up straight away. Her youngest brother looks up to Joe, admires his swagger and his cars, and Joe acts like he's been in the family forever. Bonnie's elderly aunt and grandmother come to visit, and Joe drapes his thick arms around the women for a family photo, as if he's known them for years, not minutes. Joe half smiles into the camera, slouched a little in his yellow T-shirt and denim blue jeans, still totally James Dean, and oblivious to the aunt, who looks visibly uncomfortable. Joe and Bonnie are together just eight months when Joe gives her the ring. There's no wedding date, just a mutual understanding that this is what's expected. Joe tells Bonnie he has a diamond he got in Vietnam, and he's put it into the perfect setting. Very uh, thin band, and then it, it had a, a high solitaire setting. It stood very high with a diamond. And I would say the diamond was somewhere between a half and three quarters of a carat. I don't think it was a full carat. Bonnie hates the old-fashioned setting, and the high stone makes it difficult for her to wear her latex gloves in nursing class. For Bonnie, her engagement to Joe isn't as much about getting married as it is a declaration of independence from her father. Their junior year, Bonnie and Joe transfer together to Sacramento State. She's in nursing. Joe is studying criminal justice. He's aiming high for the California Highway Patrol. But increasingly, Joe does things that make her uncomfortable. She's someone who follows the rules, and Joe acts like they don't apply to him. He was an alpha. He was, uh, he was in charge. It was, uh, I won't say my way or the highway, because there was not, never the option to choose. I was already committed before there was ever an option to have a choice. He spears huge catfish in Folsom Lake for sport. She never sees a fishing or a hunting license. She walks into the kitchen one day and finds him cutting up the carcass of a deer. It's not hunting season, and there's blood everywhere. 
He grabs a gun and takes Bonnie into the orchards. He had a 22 rifle and a vulture flew out of a tree and he, sh he shot it and killed it. He shot it out of the air. A different time, there was a dove in a tree and he, he handed the rifle to me to shoot the dove. And you know, I didn't have a license or anything either. And I shot it and I hit it right in the head and, and I killed it. And he was just absolutely delighted that, that at that distance and you know, it was right in the head. And How'd you feel? I was ready to throw up. And then Joe picks up the convulsing dove and slips his thumbs through the skin and into its chest to remove the breast meat and drops the carcass to the ground. There's an efficiency to the way Joe operates. One day, a German shepherd chases their motorcycle, snapping at Bonnie's heels. Joe doesn't flinch. He raises his leg and gives it a sharp and deliberate kick. The dog falls to the pavement, dead. One night, Joe takes her to the edge of Rancho Cordova, to the boundary fence of the Aerojet rocket testing site. There are all sorts of keep-out signs on the defense contractor's barbed wire fence, but Joe wants to hunt frogs. Crossing that fence, just my heart in my throat, but just good girls don't do this. Breaking the rules is part of the thrill for Joe. He tells Bonnie, to go over the fence with him. She'll need to hold the light to blind the frogs while he spears them. She goes over. The overarching theme being that rules were not for him, that trespassing and um, poaching fish and game and uh, some of the driving things, uh, those are for other people. They just weren't for him. Bonnie's discomfort grows as the transgressions mount. They just began to accumulate until the big one for me was him asking me to help him to cheat on an exam at Sex State. The class is abnormal psychology. It's the only class they have together at Sac State. And I was doing great. I had an A on the first exam, and he, I he had something like a 60, I'm not even sure if it was passing grade, and asked me to help him. And When I asked for him to elaborate, he said, no, I want you to sit on my left and I'll sit right beside you on the right so that I can see your paper. It's the one boundary Bonnie won't cross. Her parents both work in education. Bonnie prizes learning above all else. I, I told him immediately, I won't, I, I'm not doing this. I won't do this for you. I won't even sit near you. And that became the big issue that he kept coming back to, coming back to, coming back to, that this person is helping his wife, and this, this woman is helping her boyfriend, and that this is going on all over the place, and now that we're engaged, you have to help me. I said, I don't have to help you, and I won't help you. I won't do this for you. That's about the morality of it. Joe obsesses over her refusal, brings it up again and again. It becomes obvious to Bonnie this isn't just about the test. It's about control. Joe drops his voice lower and slower. You know, I mean it. Listen to me. 
I think for him that was she's not listening to me and I will make this as serious as possible for her. I mean it. This is what you're going to do. And it was also all piled on top of, but we're engaged. But we're engaged. You have to do this. And that began to flip the switch for me that this engagement is just all wrong. This is not somebody that I want to spend my life with. So for me, it's a very good reason not to be engaged to him. In fact, everything with Joe suddenly seems wrong. The poaching, the jumped fences, the dangerous rides. That's, that's not really who I am. If it says no trespassing, then I don't go there. I am a rule follower. Bonnie waits until she gets home, and then she calls Joe to come over, and she breaks the news to him in the living room. She tells him they're not right for each other. I already had the ring off, and I gave it to him. At first, Joe pleads, I love you, Bonnie. We're meant to be together. But to Bonnie, the words sound generic, not from someone who's heartbroken. As he was leaving, some of my family members were coming out and saying goodbye too. He wasn't very happy. He wasn't happy at all. As he steps off the porch with his back to her, Joe flings an arm to the side. Bonnie thinks he's thrown the diamond ring into the pasture. She can't bear the thought of this remnant of Joe on the property. And for me, it was like Edgar Allan Poe. It's like the beating heart in the wall of uh, the ring is sitting up here. He left emotional and angry and threw this ring and I will get, I will find it, I will give it to his mother, she can give it to him when he cools off. But it just, it can't be up here in this pasture. Her brothers and sisters help her hunt, and so do their friends. Her father and his co-workers join. Nobody can find the ring, because, they come to believe, he hadn't thrown it at all. One more performance. A week later, Bonnie is back in abnormal psych, when Joe saunters in, he doesn't give her a glance. He's holding hands with a stranger, a girl with long braided hair. Serious eye roll for me. I just thought, you're such a jerk. But a few days later, Bonnie wakes in bed. It's well after midnight. And I heard a tapping, a loud tapping at the window. She kneels and pulls back the blue cotton curtain. Just inches from my face, probably six inches from my face, there was the barrel of a, of a gun pointing at me, and it was Joe. What he said to me was, get your clothes on, get dressed, we're going to Reno, and we're gonna get married tonight. Bonnie sees the gun before she sees Joe. He orders her to get dressed. She's terrified he'll shoot her. I rolled off of the bed and sort of low crawled out of there as quickly as I could. She seeks protection from the one man she least wants it from, her father. And I told him, I said, Joe's outside my window. He has a gun and he wants to take me to Reno to marry him tonight. 
And I said, I'm not going. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't know if you want to call the police. I don't know, I don't know what you want to do. My father told me to go into the main bathroom of the house, unlock the door, and stay there until he came to get me. She's in that bathroom, shaking for more than an hour. As best as Bonnie can figure, her father has gone out onto the porch to talk to Joe. Stan Caldwell has dealt with students who have guns. He knows he can handle them. And he knows a call to police would end Joe's chances in law enforcement. And then my father came and told me that, you know, I could go back to bed. And there was no discussion about what had been said. Her father doesn't even tell the rest of the family, and neither does Bonnie. But she's so shaken, she doesn't return to Sacramento State that semester. She gives up nursing, and when she does return to college, it's to be a lab tech. After the breakup with Bonnie, Joe's movements dovetail with those of a serial offender, one who will come to be known by many names. Joe graduates from college and begins a police internship near Rancho Cordova, just as the cat burglaries start. Joe's first policing job is in the Central Valley, right outside of Visalia. He marries a woman who looks a lot like Bonnie and is smart and strong-willed like Bonnie. Five months later, the fetish burglaries start in Visalia. In mid-1976, Joe moves on to a new policing job in a slightly larger force, Auburn, a half hour north of Sacramento. And three months later, the rapes in East Sacramento County begin. The first is not far from Joe's childhood home. Joe D'Angelo's first supervising sergeant in Auburn is Nick Willick. To Willick, Joe doesn't act like a cop. He's passive and constantly snacking, so much that the other officers call him Junk Food Joey. I mean, he he wasn't the life of the party. He wasn't a, uh, uh, you know, wallflower. He just, he just was kind of there. Willick is struck by how little Joe seems to understand basic policing. His numbers of arrests, numbers of citations, there was nothing remarkable at all. No significant arrests, no significant investigations, you know. One night, they're answering a silent alarm when Joe shines his light on Willick, making Willick visible to a potential prowler and putting him in danger. Willick is floored. This is a breach of basic policing. And he pulls Joe aside for a dressing down. Another sergeant reprimands Joe for slipping away while on duty. But that was just a one-time incident. And there's the time Willick reprimands Joe for violating personal space. The sergeant watches as Joe handles a call at a service station. Joe puts his hand on the guy's shoulder, and the guy starts trying to back up. But Joe keeps pressing closer. So Willick pulls Joe aside again. And so, you know, I told him, I said, look, you know, we have this space. Just keeping a respectful distance from the person, it's an officer safety issue. Because when you stand so close, they have access to your gun. Joe doesn't take the criticism well. He wouldn't get angry. He'd, he'd pout like a little kid. And he'd sulk. During the three years that Joe is with the Auburn Department, the East Area Rapist strikes 49 times. 
The East Dairy Rapist has subjugated and controlled every victim. But on the 49th attack, he loses control. It happens when the rapist creeps into the bedroom of a couple in Danville. The husband leaps up and shouts, buying time for his wife to run past the astonished attacker and out the door. Her husband takes off behind her, and the rapist is left with an empty house. Then he's gone, too. Two weeks later, in a suburb north of Sacramento, store clerks catch Joe shoplifting a hammer and a can of dog repellent. They have to tie Joe to a chair in a back room to subdue him. Joe fights the shoplifting charges, but his police career is over. He insists on a trial, and while he's waiting, Joe files a workers' compensation claim. He claims Nick Willick, now the police chief in Auburn, harassed him with constant criticism. Joe's arrest is headline news in Auburn, a town so quiet that even the police chief doesn't have an alarm on his house. We had just moved to a uh, new house, and it just had been built. I, I woke up one morning, my daughter, she would have been uh, just before, just right after she turned four years old, was laying at the laying beside my bed. I said, uh, what are you doing here? And she uh, told me that she got afraid during the night and uh, asked her what was wrong. She said that uh, someone was looking into her bedroom with a flashlight. So I went outside and, you know, I checked around the house. And the, the house had no landscaping or anything. It was just bare dirt because it had just been built. And I did find footprints uh, going up to the uh, the windows and the, the doors of the house. The chief is not really worried. Could have been a prowler. You know, I didn't know what it was. So mm-hmm. I just said, well, okay. Right after that, Willick hears from the adjuster handling Joe's workers' comp claim. So the job and me had created stress in his life. That's partially what he was blaming the, uh, I, I guess he was blaming the theft on me. He also told the, well, apparently told the therapist, and I'm saying this, this secondhand because this is what the adjuster told me, that he had came to my house to uh, you know, kill me but he couldn't find my bedroom. Chief Willick brushes it aside. He thinks Joe's faking the desire to kill his boss just to bolster his claim of mental duress. But Willick does go home, and he tells his wife and kids to be careful. If someone strange comes to the house, he cautions them, don't talk to them. Just go in and lock the door. And he installs an alarm system. The trauma of the man at her window is burned into the mind of Melissa Willick. I remember after that for a quite a long period of time, um, not even, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'd be afraid to even walk down and use the bathroom because I thought my dad was gonna think that I was someone breaking in because of this and my dad was gonna shoot me. If she does make it to the bathroom, Melissa's too afraid to return to her bed. Her mother finds the small child there in the night, 
asleep on the floor by the toilet. When Joe D'Angelo's shoplifting trial rolls around, Bonnie's mother sees the story in the paper and mentions it to her husband. And Bonnie's father remarks on the misfortune of D'Angelo. No mention that he's the same man who once tried to abduct his daughter at gunpoint. And he said that Joe needed a friend and he was going. And I just thought it was almost, it was poking his finger in my eye that why... Why would you support this guy in any way? Why not just let him swing in the wind? I mean, but that was my father, and that was a, my relationship to my father. If he could kick a hornet's nest, he would. The jury finds Joe guilty and ends any hope of a return to policing. Joe D'Angelo becomes a truck mechanic for a grocery store chain just another employee on the night shift. But sometimes, he puts down his wrench and disappears. The individual charged with murder and kidnapping in this case, Joseph D'Angelo, has not yet been tried or entered a plea. He and his lawyers declined to comment. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rainn.org. We'd like to express our gratitude to the women willing to tell their stories. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part five of six of Man in the Window. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John. Senior producer and editor is Karen Lowe. Associate producer is Casey Georgie. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Music coordinator is Marcelino Villalpando. Sound design by Spoke Media. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.